0: message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit TrinitygraceSA.org Well, I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad that you've joined us, especially if you're a guest with us. My name is Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Grace. And if you have a copy of God's word, you can turn it to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, the passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, our young disciples, young followers of Jesus, as always, I want to invite you to be listening for the following three things during the sermon this morning. First, be listening for examples of funny things kids say. What are some funny things? that kids say. Second, listen for how to say good morning in Hebrew. We're going to learn something this morning. How do you say good morning in Hebrew? And third, listen for ways we should emulate children in our relationship with Jesus. How should we become like children as we relate to Jesus? Well, we're continuing our sermon series in the gospel according to Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. And it's a historical book based on eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. And as we consider these accounts over the next few weeks leading up to Easter, our hope is that we might come to know and appreciate Jesus even more. Before we read our passage this morning, it's worth noting that Luke begins a new theme in chapter 18. And we'll touch on this a bit more in depth in just a few minutes. But what we notice is that Luke in chapter 18 is beginning to zero in on attitudes that please God. Attitudes that please God. In our text this morning, it's really the climax of that theme where we get to see what kind of attitudes please God. What we're about to read, it's one of the Bible's most cherished accounts. Here we learn what Jesus thought of children and the kind of posture and attitude that he invites you and me to adopt if we want to follow him in faithfulness. To see what I mean, you follow along as I read from Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Well, if you've been around Trinity Grace for any amount of time, you know that our congregation is full of children. And we love it because it's a sign of a healthy, vibrant church community when you have a lot of little ones running around. And if you've ever spent time around children, you know that the words that come out of their mouth can sometimes be hilarious, sometimes surprising, sometimes profound, sometimes ruthless in their honesty, right? You never know what might come out of the mouths of children. As our kids were growing up, Rachel began keeping a notebook of funny and memorable quotes through the years, and I asked permission to share a few things that came out of the mouths of our children Uh, in the past. One of my favorite was when I was getting dressed one day and I was tucking in my button down shirt and Caleb, who was a toddler at the time, asked, why are you tucking your shirt in? Are you trying to be fancy? Another funny one happened when Caleb came out of his room one night after he had been put to bed and he said, I can't go to sleep. Abby is disturbing me. And Abby followed right behind and said, I can't go to sleep either. I'm disturbing myself. (laughs) As I was thinking about the words of children this week, I did a bit of research on the internet and found some pretty funny examples of funny things that kids have said. They include quotes like, "'Goodwill is wearing me out. You're always giving him all my stuff.'" Another child says, I know this because it's a fact. T-Rex dinosaurs were so mad because they couldn't get hugs. Arms are too short, right? One child looked at his mom and said, you're like a professional mom. (laughs) Another child said, I wonder sometimes if we ever give God a headache. (laughs) While kids are full of hope and honesty and wonder and simplicity, We all know that something happens when you grow older. You don't even mean for it to happen. But as people get older, they tend to grow more cynical about life. They're prone to value sophistication and self-importance. They prize self-sufficiency. They highlight knowledge and skill and professionalism and control. The difference between a child and an adult, it's a really good image to have in mind as we consider the passage that we just read. And it's because Jesus highlights children as an example to emulate. As a picture of the kind of attitude that pleases God as the type of posture that he wants us to have if we hope to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus uses children here as a living picture to teach us a valuable lesson. And it's his disciples who act as the foil in this particular account. Now, Luke, by and large, paints the disciples in a positive light relative to the other gospel writers, but it's clear here that the disciples are the problem. It's not the religious leaders, it's not the Pharisees and scribes that were trying to keep little children from Jesus in this passage. Jesus was welcoming children. He was laying hands on them to bless them. And then all of a sudden, his disciples start setting up barriers that Jesus never asked them to set up. The disciples show us how easy it is to adopt the mentality of a Pharisee. They're doing what Pharisees do here, making things more strict for others than God commands or even wants. They're implementing rules and norms that Jesus never asked for. But I think we can understand and sympathize with the disciples' intentions here. It's probable that they thought Jesus was too busy or too tired to be bothered by children. Or they may have thought children were too insignificant for Jesus' time and attention. They believed that Jesus didn't need to be bothered by such trivialities. Children infringed on his time. And the bottom line is that the disciples display an exaggerated sense of self-importance in this account. And if we understood a bit of the first century culture, it would help us understand how the disciples could push children away. It's not that crazy. After all, today when we see babies and children, we tend to gravitate to them. We value them. We even dote over them. But in the first century, in that agricultural society where hard work was valued and needed, children had no real status. They were considered of no account. In most ancient cultures, children were regarded as a burden until they were physically strong enough to contribute to the family. In fact, there was a well-known rabbi who once said this, morning sleep, midday wine, chatting with children and tearing in places where the common people assemble, destroy a man. So we can begin to understand why the disciples wanted to keep the children away, right? The disciples believed that Jesus' work should be focused on people more able, more important, more competent, more self-sufficient, more intellectual, more valuable than children. And unfortunately, I think that we can resonate with the disciples' instincts. And it's not a good thing according to the passage that we just read. If we step back and think about it, how often do we set up barriers that Jesus never asked for? How do we keep people from coming freely to Jesus in our own lives? How often do we implicitly communicate that you have to accomplish a certain level of morality before coming to Jesus? That you have to attain a certain degree of theological knowledge before you can come? That you have to prove your worth before you can come. That you have to demonstrate your competence in marriage or parenting before you can come. That you have to impress Jesus in order to get his attention. That you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be self-sufficient and successful before you can come. That you're more valuable in his kingdom if you have resources and connections to offer. We need this passage. It invites us to recalibrate our hearts. It shows us the posture required to enter the kingdom. It highlights the attitude that Jesus welcomes, even though it goes against the grain of what we would expect. In seminary, one of my favorite professors, he's a world-class Old Testament scholar. His work particularly focuses on the book of Leviticus. Uh, He makes Leviticus come to life. I know that's hard to believe, but he does. And before every class, he would start the same exact way, no matter what class you had with him. I probably did this dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of times. He would enter the room and he would say, Boker Tov class, Boker Tov class, which means good morning in Hebrew. And we would respond out loud as the class, Boker Tov, Jay. He never asked us to address him with his title, doctor. He was a very humble man, is a very humble man. And he would then say, start with the Bible, and we would respond as a class, not with the commentary. He would then say, context, and we would respond as the class by saying, is king. Context is king. It's so important to consider what comes before and after the passage that you're focused on in an effort to understand it even more deeply. And considering the context of our passage this morning, it really helps drive home the point that Luke is trying to make. Chapter 18, if you have your Bible open, you can look at it. It begins with the story of the persistent widow. And she's a woman who bothers the town judge until he grants her justice, highlighting what it looks like to bother God in prayer, to bother God in prayer, to be shameless in the way that we come to him time and time again. Well, that story is followed by the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the middle of chapter 18, and that story highlights prideful religious people who think they're more important than others, who rely on their effort and their devotion and their resources and their self-sufficiency to gain God's attention. And against the example of the Pharisee who highlights his glowing resume of good works, we get the tax collector who simply stands before God beats his chest and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the tax collector is the one who went home justified. Now, following those two stories, we come to the climax of what Luke is trying to communicate as he highlights Jesus welcoming children. And he's using them as a real-life example of the kind of people to whom the kingdom belongs. Context is king. And the context shows us that chapter 18 is highlighting the kind of attitudes that God values. Persistence, recognition that you're a sinner and asking for mercy, coming to him like children. So let's take a look at them and see what we can learn. Let's consider how Jesus invites us to emulate children if we hope to enter the kingdom. What's happening at the beginning of this passage? Well, parents, they're bringing their children to Jesus so that he might bless them, right? It was Jewish cultural practice where children are brought to be blessed by important people, bestowing honor on the children. In Judaism, blessings were often given by elders and scribes. And these children, they're likely under 12 years of age, given the word that's used in the original language to describe them. Babies all the way up to young toddlers are in view here in this passage. And as we've already mentioned, the disciples saw the activity and they rebuked the crowd. Remember, the disciples knew that they had a leader on their hands in Jesus. And they wanted to leverage their leader, right? That means they want their leader to do things that pay off for them. They want him to invest his time only in things that really get something done, that accomplish a purpose. Spend time with children? why would he do that? Children are so inconsequential. Children can't do anything for you in return. Remember the disciples, they had big expectations for Jesus by this point for what he would do for the kind of political victory that he was about to bring. For a man like Jesus, for such a great leader as him to spend his time on children would have been seen as a waste of time. So they complain, they begin to rebuke the crowd. And against the protest from the disciples, we see that Jesus welcomes the children to come. In fact, he insists on it. Jesus doesn't bar anyone from access to him. Every person is significant in his eyes. And he even goes further to use these little children as a real-life example to emulate when he says this in verse 16 and 17. You can look at it. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying that children are the ones who most truly show us what it means to accept and enter God's kingdom. There's something about the helplessness of children and their complete trust of those who love and care for them, which perfectly demonstrates the humble trust that Jesus has been speaking of his entire ministry. It's to the childlike to whom the kingdom belongs. Children represent the attitude of a person, the attitude that a person must have if they're to enter the kingdom of God. Now, with that in mind, it would be a good time to ask the question, what are children like? And it's funny that I asked this very question at our staff meeting on Tuesday morning. We carve out time each week to consider and discuss the upcoming sermon passage as a staff team, and I threw out the idea uh, this past Tuesday that children are nonviolent, And I was immediately reminded how wrong that notion is, by the way. Apparently, I forgot how fiery a toddler could be. But we were still able to identify some qualities that generally characterize children both in the first century and today. When you think about children, it's evident that they're dependent. They're humble. They're helpless in many ways as infants. They're simple. They tend to be trusting. They're inconvenient. They're messy. They're ignorant. They're truthful, sometimes to a fault. Often saying whatever's on their mind. They're important, but not totally respected. They're joyful and grateful to receive small gifts. They're not cynical. They still maintain a sense of wonder and curiosity and awe about the world and what God's doing. Children are generally without guile, aren't they? They're not scared to ask for what they need, what they want. They're not bashful. For instance, one of our children woke up every morning as a child and asked Rachel for candy and a TV show without fail every day. And of course, Rachel said no each time, but they kept asking. Children, they're persistent in that way. Modeling what asking God for needs and wants might look like for us. God doesn't mind being asked. He's going to do what he wants to do, but we can bring our requests to him. He invites us to ask. The bottom line is that Jesus is highlighting wholehearted trust here. Children show us the way in their utter dependence, their humility, their reliance. These children in our passage represent childlike trust. And for us, their example can act as a guard against intellectualism, especially for us in the Reformed world. After all, children don't understand every facet of theology, every nuance of Scripture. They don't have an answer for every doubt. And they show us that we don't have to know everything. At the end of the day, you know, there are only a very few simple things that are required to know in order to follow Jesus. All we really need at the end of the day is to come to Jesus to recognize our need to make our way into his presence and be welcomed by him, to express faith, repentance, I heard the story this past week of a friend in Canada and he said he's got a person in his church that is very intellectual and philosophical and he gets himself tied up into knots thinking about certain aspects of who God is and theology and philosophy. Tied him in such knots that he has to actually go and seek counsel in order to get them untied. And he said the thing that helps him the most is simply singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He is weak, or we are weak and he is strong. We all know that song. It's that simple. But how do we apply this passage to our hearts and lives this morning? If entrance to the kingdom requires a childlike attitude, what does that mean for you today? Well, it at least means we should be cultivating childlike trust and faith in our lives. Putting ourselves in places and around people and community in front of teaching and formation that invites us to embrace our simplicity, to recognize our dependence To take joy in our limits. To to cultivate our sense of wonder and awe. As children who exhibit trust, we're called to believe God's word even when it seems crazy to our modern ears. And doesn't it sometimes seem crazy to our friends and neighbors? Isn't that what often stands out about children though? They almost naturally believe what they're told even even when they're told something that seems outlandish. As children, we don't always know what's best for us. So we're invited to listen to God's word and trust that it's the way to life and freedom and joy. And in some areas, depending on who you are, that is growing more difficult, isn't it? Are we willing to listen to and to heed God's word like children when it talks about our sexuality and the parameters that are set up by God in that department? Or do we heed God's word like trusting children when it talks about generosity and sacrificial giving leading to a joyful life? Or do we heed God's word like trusting children when it talks about loving our enemies and turning the other cheek and responding to those who hate us with kindness and gentleness and patience? Like the children in our passage, we need to come to Jesus with childlike faith and trust, listening to his words. We need to readily admit our dependence for provision and guidance and care. But God is not ashamed by your need. You know that, right? He is not ashamed by your limits. He's not put off by your dependence. He's not shocked by your continual failures and blunders and shortcomings. He's not angry that you're not further along in the Christian life. No, in fact, your need, your dependence, your trust, your messiness, if I can put it this way, is God's glory. It's the very place where he comes to meet you in order to reveal his amazing grace and love and forgiveness and restoration. Don't be ashamed of your weakness. Paul certainly wasn't. He boasted in it. Because in your weakness, God can be strong. In your frailty, God can most clearly show up. So come to Jesus. Come to him again and again and again. It's not a one-time thing. You come to him multiple times, dozens of times throughout the week. Come to him in prayer, telling him your needs. Come to him with hopeful trust and dependence, asking him to guide and direct your steps when it comes to relationships or decisions or temptation or how to serve or parenting or difficult conversations. If you think you're not needy, if you believe that you can do life on your own, if you assume that you're self-sufficient, that's a problem when it comes to following Jesus. But if you know your need, if you embrace your dependence, if you feel helpless, that's God's glory. Jesus stands ready to welcome people with that kind of attitude and posture. Now, I imagine the idea of childlike trust and dependence on Jesus is attractive. I hope it is. But it's hard because everything in our culture encourages us to show no weakness, to depend on no one, to chart our own path, to be self-sufficient. But as we look at this account, and more importantly, as we look at the life of Jesus, we come to understand that isn't what God wants for us. God actually encourages the opposite. Because he wants us to live with a peace that only he can bring. He wants to guide us. And it's counterintuitive to our experience in this world, but God works most powerfully through your dependence. He works most profoundly as you embrace your weaknesses. He works in significant ways as people express trust in him. He works best with those who know their deep need. He works through childlike faith. It's how God works. How do we know? Well, we can look at our passage, of course, and we can also look at Jesus. He modeled dependence and trust for us perfectly. He's not asking us to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. It's the kind of life we see Jesus live when he came to visit this world. In the Gospels, we see David's greater son, Jesus, the king. He inhabits the qualities of childlike faith as he walked the earth and related to his father. He didn't come with power. He didn't come with strength. He didn't come with great influence. He didn't come with any kind of flash or beauty. Jesus didn't seek out power. No, in fact, he gave it up. He didn't hang on to control. He knew his father controlled all things. He didn't defend himself or shout louder when accused by other people. He entrusted himself to his father's care, much like a child. I love how one author puts it when he says, Jesus is without question the most dependent human being who ever lived. Because he can't do life on his own, he prays and he prays and he prays. He was completely dependent on his Father. Trusting him to provide all that he needed to guide his steps in constant conversation with his Father about his desires and his goals, he and the Father were one. Think about the humility demonstrated by Jesus to visit us. The way he loved God and loved neighbor so perfectly in a quiet, faithful, childlike kind of way. As we walk with Jesus, we will learn this posture of childlike faith more and more. Hopefully we'll come to believe that this posture of childlike dependence and quiet trust is the way that God works most profoundly as we seek to love God and love neighbor. As we seek to see his kingdom values extended into this world. If Jesus died and rose again, if he really died and rose again, you can receive the kingdom like a child. The work has been done. All you have to do is receive. You're invited to trust. We have a father who's finished the task. And now we get to enjoy the goodness of the kingdom as we trust him like children. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we are so grateful for the work that you have done for the fact that it is finished, for the fact that you invite us into your presence with childlike faith and trust. Lord, we pray that you might cultivate that childlike faith and trust in each one of us more deeply and that as that childlike faith and trust continues to develop, that you would use us to extend your kingdom values into this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.